listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. This past weekend, of course, we celebrated the ninth anniversary of uh, a very tragic day, 9-11. And the way this Sangha celebrated it was to actually go to an event in Berkeley called Sangha Palooza, where we uh, met with uh, over 30 other Sanghas in the Bay Area, very similar to this one. Uh, and they all met, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I felt it was uh, just a very constructive way to be reminded that we're not alone as we do this. As we do this thing called meditation, as we do this thing called, uh, uh, you know, learning about the Dharma. This, while it, you know, you can't ride on anybody's, anybody's back, nobody's coattails, nobody's going to take you there. You have to do all the work. But that a lot of people are in that space really sincere practitioners who are anxious to kind of get to this place of truth that is beyond your truth or my truth, but this truth beyond name and form. This opening, this openness that allows us to walk and meet the world as peace. Now, it's not that we're finding peace is that peace is expressing itself through us. It's as if peace finds us. And we make ourselves available to that when we are still. And so one of the guys, one of the guys that was there, he's, uh, I think he's, I think he's, <laughs> he's an amazing teacher simply because of his, his presence. And um, this is funny. He used to go out with my eighth grade girlfriend. Or excuse me, he's married to my eighth grade girlfriend. Uh, he's from Tibet, and he's a Rinpoche. I mean, he's been you know, given all the, all the stuff. You know, he's a reincarnated, you know, something. <laughs> and uh, he and I have had this, this conversation a couple times, but he... he uh, <laughs> he said, uh, this is a couple of years ago, he said, have you noticed that the traditions can be improved upon, but what they're pointing to can't be improved upon? It's like, you're, you're damn right. <laughs> the traditions themselves, in other words, we might be able to tweak them a little bit here and there for you know, uh, in ways that we find to be constructive. 
in ways that help us uncover this truth beyond name and form. But what they're pointing to, that's why whenever we, you know, at least it, when I am asked, or, well, are you, you're not really Zen, are you? You're not really Buddhist, are you? It's like, no, my training is definitely Zen. My training is definitely Buddhist. There's no way you could really separate the Buddhism out of what I do here every week. It's uh, really influenced at a basic level by the Buddha's teachings. But as far as an adherence to Buddhism, I'm not really there. And some of you who are, you know, really schooled in, in Buddhist practice have probably been, you've noticed that. <laughs> Having said that, the tradition, while it isn't something that uh, infinite smile necessarily adheres to, it's got to honor it. And it's also got to honor the tender essence of Christianity, of Hinduism, of Islam, of all the great traditions. It's not that they're all saying the same thing or that they're all saying it in the same way. I think that's intellectually lazy for us to, to you know, say that every, everything is equal. That's, that's a criticism I have of my friends on the left politically. That uh, uh, no hierarchy, everything is equal. My criticism of my friends on the right is that we're right, you're wrong. Our way is right, and right, and so you can get into really messy places in both. For instance, if we are in a space where everything is equal, oh, so you're comparing then you, you know Nazism, let's say on the one hand, or let's say the Khmer Rouge, and you compare that to someone who's a Southern Baptist, you're saying that's equal, that they both should have an equal participatory relevance in culture? Let's hope not. Hierarchy is not wrong. Hierarchy is not evil. We see this all the time. I speak about this a fair amount because it's one of the things that that this particular type of practice, I think, attracts. It's people who are looking for something that is kind of jettisoned, perhaps a traditional hierarchy uh, that someone might have experienced in a wisdom tradition. But hierarchy is, is beautiful. It's marvelous. It's when you have an acorn and you recognize that that acorn is not the same thing as an oak tree. It has everything that that oak tree needs as long as it's nourished with water and sunshine. A little bit of love by the deer. In other words, the best love that a deer could show, a sapling oak, is to leave it the hell alone, right? I hate deer. Anyway, so, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding, but you get the idea. There is, there is a difference. There is a difference. And so when we can look at ourselves as participating in a vertical as well as horizontal approach towards spirituality, suddenly we begin to have uh, an availability to integrating all sorts of really cool things. If on the other hand, we are hell-bent on making sure that everything is equal and there is no hierarchy, we can get lost real easily. That can become an attachment that we cling to. And then that truth beyond name and form 
becomes something utterly, completely, and totally elusive on all sorts of different levels. If on the other hand, on the other hand we look at our way as right, this is, this is the only authentic path. Everything else, it's okay. But this is, <laughs> if we're in that space, that subtle and sometimes not so subtle arrogance leads us into some real uh, issues of clinging. We saw this take place in Florida. We're going to burn the Quran. Well, what's the appropriate response? I mean, you could just say, don't do that, asshole. You could do that, but there's got to be a better way. You're getting caught by someone's unconsciousness the minute we go on the counterattack. And uh, I decided to uh, buy one. <laughs> so I, I bought a Quran and um, then started, I read it in college and I read the Bible and, and some other things. And uh, I was struck at that point in my life as to how goofy they seemed in so many different ways. Now, I have since kind of developed a renewed appreciation for tradition uh, in my old age, and, uh, uh, or middle age, technically. Um, and what I have found is that, yeah, there's still a lot of really goofy stuff in wisdom, tradition, especially scripturally, including Buddhism. All right? In fact, of all my readings that I have done, and I'm not the world's best reader, and I'm sure there are people who are much smarter than I am who have been able to really do some great comparative analysis here that I'm not touching on. But while they all have their goofiness, they also all have their beauty. And being able to recognize their beauty and respect it, respect that beauty, allows us to recognize that everything is the word of God. There is nothing that is not the word of God. There is nothing that is not the dance of spirit. I was uh, brushing up on my Arabic uh, today and uh, one of the things that uh, I'm a big fan of this whole thing called unattachment or non-attachment. I t typically do not call it detachment because detachment always has a connotation of, of, of a pushing away. If you see somebody that, for instance, is detached, they tend to be someone who's and they're just not all, they're not present. And as a Buddhist, as a as a Buddhist or as somebody who's trained as a Buddhist, um, that's like the key is presence. That's why Buddhists, by the way, are, we're the greediest of all uh, wisdom traditions because we're always demanding presence. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that was really bad, but forgive me. <laughs> but for instance, I was looking at, at, at non-attachment and in, in uh, uh, Pali and Sanskrit, there are words for them. Anika is the way we refer to it in Buddhism. Sud in Arabic, Z-U-H-D. Non-attachment. Islam, Buddhism. 
loving kindness, karuna in Buddhism, rahma in Arabic. Emptiness in Buddhism we refer to as shunya or shunyata. In Arabic, shahada. Also translates to no divinity, emptiness. Uh, in, uh, in the Quran, you'll find God's face is referred to uh, a great deal. Nothing exists but God in his face. I love that line. Nothing exists but God in his face. I hope that sounds very familiar. I mean, I'm saying that all the time. It's all spirit and action. Everything. Everything. The uh, Tibetan saint Milarepa. Try to understand that nirvana and samsara are not two. The core of this view lies in non-duality. Nothing exists but God in his face. The same angle, or excuse me, this, the same approach, maybe a different angle. Dharma, or teaching, or way, and al-samad. I don't know, I just thought it was kind of neat. Uh, and my heart breaks for those people uh, and those aspects of myself that can't start seeing the commonality, that, that hedge their bets when I hedge and I don't see myself in another, that each of us actually has our own inner fundamentalist. Every one of us has a certain kind of fundamentalist that's clinging to a view, to a viewpoint. The very thing that's, I am in here and everything else is out there. That's the source of this discomfort. That's the source, therefore, of exactly what spawns someone to fly airplanes into buildings or burn sacred texts of another, texts of another culture. And so when we start actually seeing unity, when there's a deep singularity that begins to kind of unfold within us and we start recognizing that the very people who want to kill us, okay, or the people we want to kill or attack are all in this together, when we no longer see an us is them, when we see it's all us, okay? And we can respond from a loving place, even if they're trying to kill us. What we're then doing is increasing the peace. And that's key. We start here, inside. Start here. And then our activism takes on an entirely different, an entirely different tenor. We meet the world in a much different way. And so instead of calling someone who's doing something we disagree with, you know, a big fat jerk or something like that, we instead can meet it with peace, meet it with our consciousness, meet it with our presence, and follow that presence into an appropriate response. It works every single time if we have the ability to follow the presence, if we can stay centered. 
How you do that? That's called practice. And for any of you interested, read the Quran. Okay? Read it. You'll find a lot of goofy stuff in there that you probably disagree with and a lot of beautiful stuff that will bring you to your knees and bring tears to your eyes. Same thing for the Bible. Same thing with the Upanishads. Same thing with any of the sutras. Same thing with the Talmud. Try it. And in the meantime, enjoy every second. what this symbolizes and I've shared this before but just to uh, kind of cover it again there was a there was a teaching where the Buddha I'm not going to go into the historical context here but where the, where the Buddha held up a flower and one of the students in the assembly smiled was enlightened and uh, that was all the Buddha said just held up a flower so this has kind of become kind of like a uh, a symbol of kind of the um, symbol of the seat so to speak and it's made from pine uh, and uh, got it in China in Shanghai and it's incredibly ugly on the one hand and then on the other hand it's kind of cool so I uh, seem perfect ugly not ugly you know aesthetically pleasing but not really you know so it was middle way uh. <laughs> so this idea this idea that uh, tradition Practice. We might improve upon it a little bit, but what it's pointing to? How do you how do you improve on perfection? And I think the answer is. Tell him I'm not home. Please, Ed. I think the answer is uh, we don't we don't improve on perfection. I think what we do is we somehow dig deep enough to have the courage to face what we're most afraid of. There's probably nothing that will uh, heat up your practice more than that. I had, uh, I, I've, I've sometimes, you know, people say, you know, I, I just kind of lose motivation to sit. And there are some things that can help help with that. If you uh, if you're one of those people who falls asleep during meditation, first of all, this is really natural. What you're doing as a sitter is unbelievably stressful. If you think about it, what are you doing? You're actually facing your life totally. There's no hiding. You're totally vulnerable. 
And so your subconscious mind and your conscious mind are both working overtime to make sure that they feel safe somehow. And there's, I mean, this practice is anything but safe. It's not going to necessarily make you feel better all the time. Sometimes it'll make you feel great. Okay, but sometimes it actually makes you feel more exposed. That's often the experience people have when they walk in here for the first time. They feel very exposed. What the hell am I doing here? Why am I doing, this is weird, or, you know, whatever. And it's because that's exactly what's being asked of us. True presence, if you will, is about allowing for that exposure. The more we sit, the more we actually feel. And this means the more intensely, oftentimes, that we'll feel pain. I love the expression, it hurts more. Once you, once you start meditating, it all hurts more. But it matters less. It's just experienced as pain. It's just pain. It's just discomfort. That, ugh, it's just agony. I've been there before. I know what that agony is like. Oh, there it is, the universe telling me that I'm not in charge. And we're not. There are things we can do to help augment an awakened participation in this experience of the universe. Among them, stillness. Engaging in a loving way with other human beings. Being kind. Recognizing that we aren't separate. Being fearless. Looking at our own addictions, whatever they may be. Every one of us has and the, the primary addiction, as I've mentioned before, last few weeks, I've kind of spent a little bit of time on this, is an addiction to I'm in here and everybody else is out there. And because I'm in here and everybody else is out there, I feel threatened and vulnerable. And therefore, what does that cause? Well, that spawns another addiction. It spawns another craving, which is safety or pleasure because I'm feeling vulnerable and feeling vulnerable does not elicit a pleasure response. And so what do we do? We run for that feeling of pleasure and we go shopping or we yell at the television or we drink too much or we smoke too much or whatever, whatever it is. And so what we can do is we can be, begin to fearlessly look at that stuff, knowing full well that it may hurt more. But through practice, we start, you know, just like you, uh, do you remember when you first learned how to ride a bike? Anybody? Anybody remember that? Okay. Now, mine was particularly interesting. It was on Park Lane Court in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And I remember I, I felt so proud of the fact that I could actually I could ride this bike. I, I couldn't really steer it, but I could sure ride it. And my, my dad had, thanks, Barb. My dad had, had this, I mean, just this infinite patience where he'd kind of, he'd push the seat and I'd go, Michael, go. And, you know, I'd start pedaling. And I realized, God, you know, if you pedal, 
you actually have a certain amount of, there's a participatory dance here that's going on. And then uh, I realized as I was doing that and, and all the neighborhood kids were watching, I'm glad I'm laughing at this now. I, I'm riding along and suddenly there's Mr. Booth's mailbox <laughs> approaching at what seemed to be just an amazingly uh, dangerous speed. And in fact, it was kind of amazingly dangerous. But as I'm riding this, I'm going, there's no way. And so what's the next move? Everything is in slow motion. Whoa, you know? <laughs> Do I wave at everybody? Watch this, this'll be fun. Instead, I just pretty much ate the mailbox and, you know, I fell on my back and everything and, and uh, you know, immediately it was kind of like, okay, you know, I got my limbs, I'm okay. And my dad comes rushing up, rather than scooping me up in his arms and saying, oh my gosh, my poor boy, he said, hey, you okay? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he had that little jerk thing, I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I remember, he insisted that I do it again. It was an incredible, incredible teaching. What happened in that moment? Well, it hurt more, but it mattered less. Now that was his gift. That was his guidance. He had a great way of, of doing that, you know, bringing a certain sensitivity and utter masculinity into, into uh, experience, and I'll share one more thing with you. I think I've, I've told you this before, but in the same way, um, with families driving across the country, and uh, because this was dad's great idea, now let's, we're gonna move out to California, we're all from California, we're moving from Michigan to California, let's just drive. Okay, bad idea, I'm just telling everybody right now, if you ever get that opportunity, that's probably a bad idea if you have uh, a nine-month-old, um, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, is that right? Am I getting that right, Mom? Now, why, how you let him do that, you can tell the Sangha after this discussion. But, uh, so we drive across, I remember we were in, uh, uh, I wanna say it was Missoula, Montana, at like, uh, you know, a Best Western or Holiday Inn or something like that. And we, we go to the pool, we, you know, been driving all day, so we're like all twitching and the baby was crying all day and it was just awful. And I go out to the, uh, go out to the pool with my brother Mark and my dad and there are these girls. <laughs> and it's like, hello ladies, all right? <laughs> I'm only six, but I'm pretty hot stuff. And I decided to do a sailor dive. You know what a sailor dive is? You put your hands behind your back. And I thought I was in the deep end. And I dove. <laughs> And I come up out of the water and my nose honestly smeared across the, the left side of my face, just full on break of my nose. And it just, and you know, blood's coming out and I come up and what does my dad do? Instead of scooping up, oh, you poor thing. He looks at me and goes, oh, woo. Okay, and he grabs a towel and he says, put this in your mouth and bite down very hard. And I'm like, you know, bite down very hard. And he says, okay, now on three, one, two, <laughs> didn't even get to three, popped it right into place. He says, do you want to keep swimming? Okay. And I did for like maybe 20 or 30 more seconds, but then I just put ice on it and I don't know what happens. I mean, you're, you're six years old and stuff like that heals. 
kind of, I have a little bit of a bend, I guess, but the, the point I'm trying to make here once again is it hurt more, and he had this way of making it matter less. That's great teaching, okay? Fearlessly approaching your experience, whatever it is. Might be financial ruin, might be death, it might be your own body giving way, it might be unbelievable loss. Facing it fearlessly allows us to meet up with this truth beyond name and form, and it's something we don't want to do. Oftentimes we will sit still, we will develop a meditation practice so that we can anesthetize ourselves from feeling, so we can actually find calm by doing a practice instead of letting calm find itself through us. How do we let calm find itself through us? By letting it happen, by being open, <coughs> by knowing that there is no emotion, there is no feeling, there is no thought that can take away what's most sacred in each and every one of us. The truth beyond name and form is beyond any of those feelings, any of those emotions, or any of those thoughts. How do we let that truth resonate through us? By making ourselves available to it. We don't do meditation, in other words. Meditation does us, right? It's essentially what, what happens if we're doing this stuff right. If we're actually consciously meeting a stillness practice. And it's hard, it's a challenge. But it shows up in pretty interesting ways. There are these, there are these four moves I want to go over. Four uh, 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 evolutionary bursts that kind of happen, that uh, point us in this direction. And it's real core and real basic to what it is that I'm doing, my approach to delivering this teaching, this dharma. Um, and so real, real super briefly, we begin with mind, okay, little babies. There's kind of this consciousness, this awareness. And what it does is it appears to be expansive. It appears as you look into a baby's face that it's, it's awake, that it's enlightened, right? Because it makes no distinction. But actually, it's, its approach to mind actually is beginning to give birth to a sense that's a little bit smaller called an ego. That mind is, is like maybe a, 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 an expanded, or rather I should say that ego is an aspect, a hardened aspect of mind. And so what we do is we actually go from this, go from this openness, right, this mind, and we start developing a relationship with ego. And as many of you know, you don't have to be a developmental psychologist to know that ego really starts forming at around two years old. Okay, the terrible twos, and that's one way of looking at them. It's also basically ego is born time. Okay, and what begins to un unfold is ego then begins to develop its own facets. It begins to see itself as its own jewel. And that carries, it, it oftentimes can carry us, you know, right, right on through, uh, uh, we can be deeply, deeply egoically bound uh, our entire life. 
except every night when we go to sleep and we hit dreamless, that dreamless aspect of sleep, ego and mind both go somewhere else. Where they go, I don't know. But they're not there. It's just being. Okay? But what happens with ego is once we go from mind into this ego and it begins to facet, okay, these facets begin to form on ego, those facets are various identifications that ego has. It's the way that it sees itself shining. So what's an identification that ego has? Well, I want you to think for a moment of a role that you play. You might be husband, you might be wife, you might be daughter, you might be son, aunt, uncle, grandfather, grandmother, whatever it is, you can take that role. You might be Asian, Hispanic, African-American, Caucasian. You take that role. You might be teacher, lawyer, business person. You might be anything under the sun professionally. Take that. Retired, you might be that. You take all of those things. Whatever role you might have, drop them for just a second. And what you're looking at when you drop them, when you look at the mess on the floor that's left, you're looking at a crushed gem. Because that ego is held together. It radiates because those facets play with the light. That you actually exist beyond that gem. That your identifications with all those roles actually aren't you. They're what the ego has done to make itself look pretty and look important. And once that's recognized, there's this miraculous moment when we can start to recognize, my gosh, I am beyond those things. I'm beyond those facets. I'm actually beyond that whole gem. The I is something different. There's an I prior to the I, and at that point, we go from identification as being our center of gravity with the ego to actually getting past the whole mind experience. We start being able to experience the mind. The mind is something we can actually, oh my God, I'm experiencing these thoughts, but there's something that's experiencing them, so what's experiencing them is not bound by the, uh-oh. Same thing with emotions. I'm experiencing these emotions, I'm experiencing this body, but there's an experiencer that is not bound by the body that is not bound by the mind. We go from identification now into openness. And this is a miraculous step that everyone can take. Everyone can move into this space regardless of their tradition. As I went over in the beginning, I mean, you have, you have some Quranic stuff that actually points in this same direction as the Buddhists do, this shunyata, this openness, okay? We can still kind of experience as shahada, okay? So we go from mind to ego to identification to boom, openness. And it doesn't stop there. 
or at least it better not, because then what happens is it moves into participation from this openness into an open participation. And that open participation, I mean, you might say, you know, it's, that's when we adhere to a really tough ethical code or a strong ethical code. We don't kill, we don't steal, we don't, I mean, all those things. We don't misuse our sexuality. We don't misuse intoxicants. Basically, what are we saying? We don't harm. And the reason why we don't harm is because through that openness, once again, through that deep singularity, through that approach to the truth beyond name and form, we recognize that harming another is harming our own essence. It's not that we do it or we don't, we don't harm because it'll cause bad karma. It's because we just, that's not where we are anymore. And so, awakening unfolds. Where do we go? We go back into the world. We go back into the world and we are able to see from this place of openness, we're able to see all those identifications that have created a faceted jewel called ego. And we can see how that ego as an aspect of this broader uh, personalized consciousness called mind itself is something that we are beyond. We are beyond mind. We are beyond time. We simply are this very moment. We are spirit in action. And there's one thing left to do when that realization is brought into the world. You, of course, have a party. <laughs>Rinpoche, actually, the direct, the, the actual translation, I'm not, I'm not sure of, but essentially, it's a, it's someone who has uh, uh, been deemed by authority to have been uh, a reincarnated uh, lama or deity, depending. Like, for instance, the uh, 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 His Holiness the Dalai Lama is supposed to be the reincarnation of Avilokiteshvara or Tara, the uh, god or the um, uh, Bodhisattva of compassion. Of yeah, which I don't buy. But that's what they say. I mean, the Dalai Lama, it, whether or not he is a reincarnation, the actual reincarnation, I mean, some people are really into this, you know. They're, and in my view, it's a great uh, arena for attachment. Um, uh, that's not to say that the Dalai Lama isn't marvelous. But whether or not he is actually Avalokiteshvara, we don't even know if Avalokiteshvara lived. So how can you, and by his own admission, it's, it's actually quite cute. I, I think I shared this with you. I was listening to him give a talk on the Heart Sutra. And he was asked about reincarnation. He says, he says well, I don't remember my past lives. <laughs> you know, he starts bouncing. You know, you know so. Who bestows that on someone? There's a committee. Yeah. <laughs>
the Rinpoche <laughs> committee. I don't, I, you know, you're, you're catching me. I, I, have, I have no real idea how, I mean, I, my scholarship is really awful. So I, I don't know, you know, the tradition exactly how, especially like uh, uh, with uh, my friend Adams. I mean, I, I don't know how that worked out. He, but he and I have kind of shared a laugh over that, you know. Uh, I think, I think, uh, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't want this podcast to go out and suddenly like destroy his entire lineage or something like that. But uh, I think that that the idea that reincarnation is absolute. You know, if I don't get it in this life, I'll get it in the next life. I mean, talk about a great hiding place for ego. You know, enlightenment, eh, maybe next life. No, this life. That's why we're here. That's why I wrote the book. That's why, I mean, that was, it was a very interesting, passionate response I had to that very comment from people in my own Zen community. Oh, maybe I'll get it in my next life. I was like, what the? <laughs> It was my own attachment, but that attachment, you know, that fire that started to burn actually really helped inspire, you know, a new seriousness in practice. It's like, um, you remember the comment, you know, when I'm falling asleep and, you know, as I'm meditating, well, then maybe you should start meditating on the edge of a cliff, right? You know, stiffen up that practice and it's amazing what kind of starts to happen. Yeah. Anyway. How's that for a non-answer? Go for it. Yeah, report back. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to know how to get on the Rinpoche committee. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Oh, sure. Before ego comes back. Yeah, we, we have, have you ever, like if you look at sleep, sleep, first of all, I think is really cool, especially studying it in relationship to consciousness, what we're doing here. And one of the things that was really a blessing uh, in my experience as a, as a meditator, when I was, you know, sitting still for hours and hours every day, is I started noticing that there's this through line of witnessing awareness that carried and carried and carried and never really went away, including as I started to go to sleep, including as I started to go to sleep and I wasn't dreaming. It wasn't just witnessing my dream, which any of you could do. You know, it takes a little practice, but next time, next time you're actually dreaming, next time you're actually dreaming and you're, you're aware that there's dreaming going on, take a breath. Be right there with the dream. And you could play with it and turn it into kind of some lucid experience, which I, you know, that's, that's all well and good, but it has nothing to do with awakening. On the other hand, witnessing the dream allows you to carry that witness even once the dream starts to fade. And so there's this really bizarre, unmistakable experience of having this consciousness that carried me all the way through to the morning Han that woke me up at 4.15. And then into, and so there was this just looping of awareness. Now it faded uh, once, I, once I got out of it. Every, every once in a while I experience it. I know I can kill it if I have three glasses of wine. It's really interesting. On my third glass, it's like, huh, you know, it's gone. Um, 
but the where does it go? Where does the ego go? Well, I don't know. When we have that hypnagogic state when you're falling asleep, you ever start falling asleep and then you have that jerk thing? You know, that's in the hypnagogic state. That's usually the body. I had it described to me as uh, this guy down at Stanford uh, Sleep Center was sharing this with me. He said, it's like, you know, if you have a uh, blanket that's wrinkled on your bed and you want to smooth it out, you pick it up and you do that. So that's essentially what's going on neurologically. It's like your body convulsing to relax itself, to kind of straighten itself out. And then we go into sleep, you know, we tip down into dreamless sleep, hitting stage four, delta wave patterns. We pop back up all the way through theta, uh, and we get into uh, REM sleep, which is paradoxically really close to being awake, all right? And then we dip down into stage four again, we come back up. And then the, at the hypnopompic moment, it's when we begin to wake up and you have, I experience it, uh, you may do this too, uh, if you have a snooze alarm, it goes off and then you hit the snooze alarm and then you suddenly have the most precious eight minutes of your day. <laughs> oh, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Well. Uh, one, of the <laughs> one of the reasons why I think meditation is so good in the morning is that the accessibility of those delta wave patterns are much more easy than they are during the day when you're amped up on, you know, you're, you're in a beta wave pattern, right? And so kind of for, for selfhood to kind of come back in just as an experience of body and an experience of mind and then to kind of plop onto the cushion and breathe through that experience, I think, is actually kind of cool. As far as my circadian rhythm goes, that's what works best. Uh, what's changed that little bit is crying babies. So I tend to try to do it uh, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes during the day. Uh, but I was just sharing this with somebody. My practice has shifted quite considerably when, uh, you know, as I haven't been able to sit every single morning, uh, especially recently. So that I'm, I'm finding that I actually try to consciously carry uh, an awareness into whatever it is that I'm doing. And sometimes I'm very successful. Sometimes I'm not very successful. Um, but that, that it, all day is really meditation. All night is really meditation. There's never not a moment of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Got time for another... Another question, if anybody has one. Sometimes it's really cool. If you had no idea what I said about something, you're absolutely 100% totally flummoxed. That's the question. That's the one that's the most helpful, not only to you, but to other people. And so often people are just petrified. Like, I'm going to sound so stupid, but I don't get what you were saying about emptiness and shunyata. What a great opportunity. You know what I mean? So, so those are things to, you know, just, just to consider. It's a great gift when you can show that vulnerability fearlessly, when you can actually let it hurt. This is going to hurt, Candace. <laughs> you saw it. Yeah. I put my hand down. Yeah. Quick no, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. got me. Yeah. What would you like to ask? You talked about, um, you were mentioning the ego and the different faucets and the jam, and it's on the floor. Um, and I understand the awareness, the consciousness that's beyond that. Um, on one hand, it sounded, I was trying to understand what you were saying. So does that mean that it, 
I don't believe what you're saying is that we um, deny that because it's a part of us. Right. Correct. So it's just a matter of being aware of it. Yeah, your awareness of ego means you cannot be run by ego. Okay. It means if you're going to be run by ego, suddenly in that moment it becomes a very, very interesting choice. If you can watch ego doing what it's doing, mm -hmm. now you're accountable. You're either going to go grown up or you're going to go ego, which as we've discussed is basically a bipolar preteen. That's what the <laughs> ego is. Lovable in its own way, but still a divine expression of the infinite, but you know? And so you can either go that route, okay? Or you can try going the other way. <laughs> and going the other way means that you're going to have to, that, that means change. Mm -hmm. And change freaks people out. And the bipolar preteen called ego recognizes this and plays upon it. it. Milks it. It turns back, it's like, and if you've ever had a bipolar preteen come at you, you know that it can work you. No matter how wise, how compassionate you are, it knows exactly the right buttons to push. And so that's, that's what we face. Now it calms down over time when it recognizes it's not going to be given the authority it has always had. That you are now running the show. And the you is something that transcends but also includes the ego. And what happens? That ego is then allowed to kind of mature. It's allowed to kind of let go of its tendencies towards ugliness and into a space of beauty where that gem can reclaim its shine without being discarded. The ego should not be, it should not be discarded. Seeing someone who's dwelling in emptiness and has no ego and no need to move and no, that's not the kind of awakening I'm talking about. It's certainly not the kind of awakening the world needs. The world needs that awakening, that openness, like I talked about, to inspire a participatory relationship with the world. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming tonight. Appreciate it. <laughs>